Welcome to this yet another session of SNBN. <laughs> I want to say SNN, BNN, compete with CNN. <laughs> so, welcome and everyone joining from here and also those from FR, including our friends from Singapore. Now, as usual, we will take the first few minutes in sitting quiet and stilling our body and mind so that uh, we could set the right mental tone of receptivity, openness, curiosity, wondering, learning. So for that, let's sit quietly and use whatever means that works for you in bringing the mind and body in sync with the present moment. So shortly we'll be saying the homage to Buddha Shakyamuni and for that we'll visualize the merit field in whatever way you feel comfortable, either simply imagining the presence of Buddha or if you want to go a little elaborate, see him surrounded by his historical disciples as well as contemporary disciples all the way to the present moment, lineage masters, like that. Basically, forming an assembly or a visualization that represents Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which we could do only having Buddha as the visualization, because he encompasses all of those. His inner qualities be there of abandonment of negativity, subscriptions, to the ultimate combination, together with omniscient mind, constitutes dharma. And he himself, as a Buddha, fully awakened one, is the Buddha. Likewise, his qualities are all Buddhas. And then either one could think of him having tra traversed the Bodhisattva path, fully awakening 
So it's moments of being Sangha, Sangha refuge. This doesn't have to be necessarily a group, but rather someone who has attained the path of seeing onward. Or else you could think of the Buddha being surrounded by myriads of its disciples through the ages, and think of their qualities. Think of them in their different stages of advancement, together with the Buddha at its culmination stage. Thinking of these, feel inspired, also encouraged, infusing us with a sense of hope, rejoicing in the practices we have been engaging in, that we aspire to even further enhance, then visualize the presence of fellow sentient beings, all in human forms, yet undergoing their own respective general samsari and individual samsari particular samsaric situation, related, related sufferings. Yet at the same time, connect with them, all without exception, on the basis of the basic, rightful, justified aspiration that we all share that of wanting happiness, not wanting suffering. Take a moment here to wonder if any particular being that you always identify with negativity, do they also share in this same aspiration of And from there, move on to all the rest of the sentient beings and affirm strongly in this conviction that yes, like me, they are the same in aspiring happiness, not wanting suffering. Everyone shares in the same equal right to obtain it, to pursue it, Then, on that basis, think of our connectedness, how we are inextricably connected, not just with those who, with whom we share the globe right now, in the present moment, but those in the past, those who will be coming in the future, irrespective of whether we know them personally or not. The richness that we speak of, that we partake of, they are all the result of contribution from 
each and every one of them in so many immediate ways. Then particularly think of their well-pronounced kindness, compassion, love, care, as well as ways by which we anyhow benefit, learn from, irrespective of their current relationships with us, provided we are open, open to them, to the occasion, more particularly to our own potential for turning everything around into something beneficial, always possible. Thinking along those lines, see if we could generate a strong warm-heartedness extending to all sentient beings. That, coupled with our sense of inspiration, hope, or with regard to the qualities of the Triple Jam, within that mindset, within that state of mentality, we will now say this. Homage to Shakyamuni Buddha. Try to come up with a felt sense of what we are saying to the extent possible. Let the mind be in the moment, be infused with the spirits that these lines carry. Sit, sit for a while with our mind in the mode of bodhicitta. I will attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. Maintain this state of mind backed up by the rational behind it, possibility behind it, the hope behind it. particularly bringing to mind what samsara is, how we are all sentient beings, are mired in it, plunged in it. Trapped in it. Now the state of being that we are aspiring to attain is completely free from those. Not just free from samsara, but even beyond that, in completely being freed of 
even the subtlest instincts of the afflictions, leaving no room whatsoever for ever returning back to the same samsaric state. Now such a state of being is also equipped with all the means that would be needed to at least on one side be fully equipped, fully compassionate, fully knowledgeable, fully concerned, fully skillful in being of benefit to such beings in the true sense of the word. Now, between this reality of samsara and the goal of aspiration in Buddha Buddha, how it is connected with our Buddha nature that we share with each and every sentient being. Once again, recall our connectedness our indebtedness to each other, our complete and thorough dependence on others for just about anything that we aspire, that we desire well. From the smallest thing, petty things, petty desires that we have, to the highest goal of full awakening, they are all completely dependent on others completely. That's because the very fact that we survive, we are living, is utterly due to either well-meaning kindness from others, or benefiting from others from what they have done, what they do, even with or without any intentional mindset of being kind, compassionate, caring. How Many Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, have done it in the past and in the present, some are doing it. It is also possible for us to do it. If they can do it, we can as well. So with these reflections, it is strongly affirmed that yes, what I'm aspiring for is not just a fantasy fantasy, rather it's rooted in reality, grounded in the actual reality of who we are. And towards that end, we are here gathered together to share the Dharma, discussing it, sharing it, So dedicate this session towards that end.
Okay, so so where were we? Stand. Oh yeah. The very last paragraph, right? On page two eighty three. Okay. Yeah, so basically we are dealing with this very important topic about the nature of mind. If at all there can be a mind separate from brain, mind separate from body. Of course, once the, it is embodied, it will work in sync, in connection, in dependence with the body. But is there the possibility, the potential for the mind to be a separate entity of its own? Like bodies, physical things are an entity of their own. They kind of follow their own stream of causality. Likewise, could there be a mind which also follows its own, if you will, stream of causation? That's very important for us to really get a glimpse of and uh, get a sense of, through whatever means we can. And there are myriads of means. If we allow that, yes, there is mind, which at its grosser level is more dependent, connected with the body, but the subtler it gets, even in our actual life also, the subtler it gets, the less dependent it becomes with the body. We ourselves go through different layers of consciousness in our actual life. When we wake up, that's the grossest. Maybe halfway through the day when we become very angry, that may be the grossest. And then when we first wake up, that may not be as gross. Sometimes it could be a kind of contentless consciousness with the potential of really showing us, yes, there's this mere luminosity, mere cognizant state of mind. But then when we go to sleep, obviously the dependence on the body has really lessened. The body is virtually, in, except for the internal uh, mechanisms, the physical mechanism is almost like that. In the Tibetan, in the Buddhist scriptures, we speak of sleep as when the sense consciousness would have withdrawn. In science, they do not necessarily make that clear cut and open, but at the very least, they say the threshold of sensory sensation has come down when we are sleeping. And then when we go into REM, situation, REM state of mind, and then deeper into the deep sleep. Yeah, we can see the body and the mind relationship, as we know from our daily experiences, has really become different. So the dependency on, of, of the mind on the body is much less. And then there are 
situations where even at this point there's no clear explanation from a scientific point of view. Many out-of-body experiences, like I was sharing with you last time about a friend of mine who shared, who confided in me and telling me, yes, when they had tattoo, tattoo sessions, they passed out several times. Not they, he passed out several times. Oh, did I say she? You didn't hear, right? So no spoiler. <laughs> but still, it's not that clear. So the person shared that she had been, she had passed out several times. And during that time, she had experience of being outside, outside session. Now the, the interesting thing would be, I don't know, uh, to see whether what she saw were actual, actual or not. If so, it's a clear indication the mind is out of the body. So usually the tattoo, what do you call tattoo yes. artists? Oh, yeah, definitely tattoo artists. They do not work on people when they pass out. They wait. So this person was in that session and then went passed out several times, so much so that eventually they had to give up. But the the sharing happened when I, in my presentation, I said when we could have such experience, it could be profound. But she said that there wasn't anything profound for me. And I could totally understand. She wasn't expecting herself to be, to die. And kind of taking it as, as, as casual, casually. And thus, there wasn't this sense of, oh, this could be death, or this could be end of my life, or this, like that. She was just taking it for what it is. And then, it turned out to be just, just the usual thing. Whereas that is usual and experiential thing for her, but not for us. <laughs> like with people who remember their past lives. How would you explain it? I mean, yes, naively we can say, as, as proponents of life after and life death, Life after and death, we can naively say, oh yeah, it's because there's something to be remembered, that they are remembering. How strong is that uh, statement? It could make like, because there's something to be remembered, they are remembering. Otherwise, how in the world they would remember anything? But whether or not that is remembering or not, is a question. Is that remembering something, or is that hallucination or something, something? Now the question is how we verify it. If there are incenses of verifying it, then that nails it. Although it doesn't necessarily say that, oh, that, that means everyone has the mind and has that capability. Except we would just, at, at least scientifically, we could say, at least that person really had a real life before. And, and <laughs> like that. <laughs> But then, one thing to, for ourselves to look at is our mental dispositions that we come with, that we 
hardly have any clue of where we could get gotten it. And speaking of dispositions in the technical sense of bhakcha is another thing. But other thing is our gross afflictions. Where in the world have they come from? How come they are not replaced by smartness, wisdom, understanding, concentration? How come we cannot sit in completely, perfectly for hours together as much as I wanted? How, how is that rare, very rare, to the point of almost not to be seen at all? Whereas the capacity of getting into rage, just with the slightest trigger, the so-called road rage, is really frightening into how people can get into extremes with just a slight thing. So that's also a question. And then in that, we vary in terms of how strong we are into one particular affliction or the other, but not the same. Personally, we could see how 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 the distribution looks like, <laughs> how the distribution of afflictions look like. How come in the same family one could be so easily enraged and another can be so calm, etc., etc.? How in the world? How 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 can we account? There are so many things. The, the question of prodigy, etc. Not necessarily spiritually, but nonetheless, something telling about how come in that family of not necessarily very, very smart guys, there's this young child at 10, 17, this 10, 7, just outshining, outdoing all of them. So uh, I can keep on, keep on going. This is not the main topic, but uh, I mean, the question about life after life before is not the main topic, but it's connected with the nature of mind. Even in our own life, we can see how mind doesn't stay static, it can change. It, someone can really turn upside down. Someone who could be so angry, easily angered, angered to the point of people, everyone agreeing that he is in the nature of anger. <laughs> so therefore, don't mess up with him and don't be bothered by him. That's who he is or she is, <laughs> through to that accent. But they aren't that, because they aren't that always. And if they care, they could really change. Plus, irrespective of how angry, anger-natured a person may be, there are gaps in between when he's so calm, kind, coy, joyful, peaceful, loving. There are pockets of that. So that means the possibility of seizing those pockets and expanding them and reaching, really kind of changing the changing the ratio, <laughs> quota of anger and else. 
And then they are, like I shared with you, I mean, there are many, I mean, the question of someone remembering about past life, uh, it's not something limited to, confined to only those uh, community or areas where they have this culture of Buddhist belief, but it's something universal. That was initially the thought when Ian Stevenson and others did the research, but particularly in India and whatnot. But then it turned out that even in Europe and other American countries, Americans, American countries, even in the families where their belief system, their main belief system, doesn't have any room for that. Even in them, children are born to the extent they could remember things about past and, and they were verified with accounts and whatnot, to the extent that the families kind of give in to say that maybe God wanted him to have next life, because we cannot deny him, right? deny what we saw. And nothing from the family's part went in sowing that seed, not at all. And then it was, they were all verified. So I could keep on going, 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 going. But, but these are not exact, clear, spot-on explanation of the luminous and cognizant nature of the mind, but saying that yet mind could extend, our mind can extend beyond this life. If it could extend to past, why not into future? I've met some Reb, uh, Jew friends uh, and Rabbi who said they are comfortable with two, three, two, three lives. I can accept two, three lives of being reborn, but not like Buddhists say, keep on being born. Then I had to say, well, we do keep on going, but not necessarily have to keep on in this, in this samsaric state. We could change into an enlightened being, enlightened state of being, and what's wrong with that kind of a continuity? After all, it's much better to be continuing and living than go extinct. Sometimes it is, this, this kind of a rem remembering this can be very helpful in whatever awful situation you may be going. At the very least, you appreciate, at the very least, I can sense it, I'm living. <laughs> I'm not dead. And, and, and that itself is a promise that, yes, you could change, you could appreciate it. In the midst of that, in the midst of that worry and, and anxiety and whatnot, you could, from a side of your mind, say, at least I'm living, which is not the case with everyone. See, this one passed away, this one passed away, this one passed away. Someone even could not make to the New Year, just died on New Year Eve. And they were among those who have big names, big shots. And this happened this year also. I was particularly watching now. Who would make to the new year? <laughs> Including myself. Could I make the new year? 
And I saw, wow, some just left. Just hours before New Year. Not that New Year is a big deal, uh, but still, in the world outside there, they make a big deal about it. So compared with that, not everyone gets that wish fulfilled to live, see the new year. I particularly remember, is it Barbara Walters? Yes, she passed alone. I think, I think, yeah. I was, I, 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 I know about her from her works. Such a bold, in the face kind of an interviewer. Wow, just look at her story. Not that I really researched into it, I just thought I could see how uh, she interviewed difficult people in the face of difficulty and whatnot, but always maintaining her own composure and whatnot. Once she was in Dharamsala to interview His Holiness, they did, what do you call the Honda? Ho, what do you call Ho, Honking. Honey. Hongi. Hongi. Okay, they did Hongi, which means nose to nose touching. Sharing of the breath. Sh pardon? Sharing the breath. Sharing the breath of the nose? I see. But basically, you see touching the nose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Could you explain? You you touch nose and and forehead and then you share the breath. That's a way that in um, in New Zealand the Māori greet each other. I see. Or greet anyone. So if you go onto yeah. like their onto a marae on their like kind of temple, I guess you could say meeting house, then you don't know anyone. You're you're squishing your face up against each other and sharing breath as a way of greeting. Wow. Yeah. I particularly remember. Not. Not that I was there, but I saw that on the video. And knowing who Barbara Welters was, His Holiness was very particular. That, that who knows, she could really seize the opportunity and do who knows what. <laughs> so His Holiness kind of reached out and closed her mouth and, and then touched the nose. <laughs> I thought that was such a presence of mind. <laughs> really, because that's a great opportunity to really make a big name about it everywhere. Be the talk of the uh, talk of the town. town, not just town. Talk of the world. <laughs> Who knows? Talk of the universe. Even guards will be kind of. Ah! This happened. Oh, she took it so calmly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, who knows? Who knows what may be what may be planning behind it? But seeing what had happened, she could just take it. <laughs> but I don't think she she meant anything. She, but in the interview, in and in the interview, she was asking, "Who are you?" Who are you? 
Wow. That's very typical of who she was. Come up with that kind of a question. Who are you? Yeah. And then in Canada, yeah, this you haven't heard. In Canada, very close to Losar, there was a girl, maybe seven years old, was walking with her brother, eleven years old, crossing a crossing a red line. Uh, uh, what do you call? Crossing a yeah, a crosswalk. Yeah, but where there is just light, but mm, what's it? So, yeah, somehow, somehow, even with the red light, somebody didn't stop, and then she was overrun. Few days before Losa, they were in the previous days. They were talking so much about what we will do in Losa and this and that and that, and the whole family was plunged into untold trauma. So much so that the family, the father and mother, were not able to really do anything, kind of what, completely traumatized. So this, so her 11-year-old brother had to step up and make, do this campaign of raising enough, uh, gathering enough signatures so that they could, uh, that, that the town department could uh, install not just the red light but something yes maybe something extra was <laughs> and he was doing it 11 year old they were completely devastated so between the fact the two factual things about our life we are all here we are all we have all come to pass we have all come to only pass, <laughs> okay? Which means our death is predestined. That's the one surest thing. And then when it will occur, there's no certainty in what form. Those are two facts. So now between the two, now we can decide how we want to live our life how precious this present moment is. What would be the best way of using this time? Fighting out, du duking, duking, uh, duking it out with others? <laughs> or, or having friendly blindness? Not necessarily physically, but mentally. If that's how we engage in our time while we are alive, that would be awful. And plus, if that's the state we go into death, it's quite evident what karma would have been. What karma would have been in conversation with it, <laughs> with that man's sermon? What karma would have been ripened? So even in the, uh, just one more, even in the um, research work on the possibility of life after life people, I think Ian Stevenson and his, his 
students who are right now uh, leading, heading that same department in Virginia University. It has several different parts. Several different, some are quite wayward. <laughs> so it's just, it seems to spoil the rest of it. <laughs> anyway, in their researches, some has to do with finding birthmarks and then and then uh, verifying whether those birthmarks are actually uh, have have something to do with who they claim to be the previous person they would go into medical records and very often many of them have been verified this part is little uh what do you call it? Uh, uh, intriguing and also little bit difficult to explain. We say mind travels. Well, together with its subtlest body, but not the physical body, the gross body. But then the marks are on the physical body, and it has to, and it's connected with someone having been shot this way or that way on that side and but not, and we verified it. So this is what may include in what we call subtle dependent origination, subtle dependent origination, including in our context of Tonglen, some in some cases masters able to actually take on others' suffering. Actually take on. You are having headache, I say, no, you should not, may I? Right now, you are okay, then, then I have the headache. So such occasions happened. I hear, I heard His Holiness and the Lama sharing uh, some uh, accounts of some accounts relating to this. One is, uh, yeah, one is uh, as a teacher of Atisha. His name itself is called Lama Chamben Nenjo, Yogi of Maitreya, Yogi of Loving Kindness. I don't know if that was his actual name or adopted name because of who who he was in terms of what his main prospects was. And then the other one is the famous uh, Bodhisattva, Nguchu Tome Sangbo, who composed the 37 practices of Bodhisattva. And there are other accounts of him, of radical change, when, when we, we aspire to be bodhisattvas, and but uh, do we have any idea what that would really mean? If we were actual bodhisattvas among non bodhisattvas, we would be the weirdest person to look at. How he thinks, how he does, how how easily he would shed tears and would. Uh, one such thing happened with Muchudama Bada, 
when they were the the teacher and the student were together with others uh, on a journey across the the mountains on their yak back with others carrying their luggage or not and they were passing through a very narrow oh, narrow path one or two yaks fell down Ujjuddhamma Bada was among them, uh, among the people with the caravan. He just broke, uh, what, what do you say? Yeah, broke down. Okay, he just... Phrasal verbs is a problem for me. I know break, but what do I have to say? Break up, break down, break down. <laughs> anyway, so he broke down. <laughs> So much so that he wouldn't move. He said, No, my mother died. And he was genuinely saying that. Because he was seeing everyone as having been mother. As having been mother so continuously. Right? To the extent that you cannot say somebody has not done, somebody has not been your mother. Right? It's just impossible to say. In terms of factual, whether they had actually done or not, the possibility is yes, they have several times, but nonetheless, the possibility is not eliminated, as I was saying earlier. So the Lama, the Masters, commented on him I have so many disciples, but not one that is like you. So many disciples, but Disciple like you, just one in you, that's you. So they had to leave him with some student to help, and then they left. So, yeah, it's a very radical change of mentality. Very radical change. So, be warned. <laughs> Think. Think before you <laughs> or be prepared that that will be coming. Uh, allow that within your visualization also. Feel prepared. Pardon? Yeah, to be aware. Yeah. Pardon? Yes, Bakala. <laughs> Buggle up, there's a bumpy road. <laughs> okay, so far it hasn't been so bumpy. <laughs> it's a bit smooth, right? Okay, let's let's push the text a little bit. How much time do we have today, tonight? Are you tired? No, 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 it's that would be too much. Is it? Really? No, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm concerned that you might have fatigue, dharma fatigue. No, there cannot be. Yeah. There's no such thing as compassion fatigue. No, can there be anything as dharma fatigue? Okay. If that's what you're going, going, getting, then the dharma is not the dharma. <laughs> If you are getting compassion fatigue, then what you call compassion is 
have compassion. It may be self-oriented, something, something. Anyway, anyway, let's let's look at page two, two eighty-three, <laughs> last paragraph. Both sentient beings and Buddhas possess. So yeah, I was saying this, the the nature of mind is something to be really looked at. Looked at in terms of what what really mind is vis-a-vis -vis the brain. As I as I told you, I saw this shift in the uh, in the stand that mind and life took. In one of their brochures, they suggest something. I said, really? Do you really mean put brain behind, put brain aside and then talk of mind? And then the, the president of the mind and life said, yes. And then they, she called their scientists to explain things to me, how their position has shifted. But not quite totally to the Buddhist fold. They were ex ex explaining mind in terms of what I shared with you, the three E's, four E's. Extended, embodied, embedded, inactive, something like that. Yeah. So the mind is outside of the body, extending. So anyway, something different from the the mainstream hard-nosed neuroscientists. <laughs> At least so far. At the gross level, the, the theory is working, but at the best, it is an assumption. So, both sentient beings and Buddhas possess the primordially pure awake awareness of Rikpa. Yes, but at the same time, one thing to remember is irrespective of whether there is this mind separate from body. But what we get to do in terms of uh, Buddhist practice, even allowing that, is just be mindful of one's mental state and always take a stance of caution against afflictions and always strive to replace them with positive qualities. And that is as good as anything can be. It's a win-win. <laughs> it's a win-win. If there is, I mean, you remember in in... Kalama Sutta, Kalama Sutta, right? In their Buddha says, somebody asks a question like, many teachers come through our town, they teach differently. Last year you came and you talked about the four imaginables. That was wonderful. Some masters come and talk about karma, some masters come and talk about life after. We're confused, what should we do? What harm is there if you accept it? If you accept it, you will be using your time meaningfully. And you benefit right then and there. And it, if it turns out that there is indeed a life after, you would have already been prepared. There is. You wouldn't have lost anything. You would have just only gained. But then on top of that, when we see of the evidences, the evidences far for life, before life after, far outweigh evidence on the other side. And then in this regard, if one is struggling and wondering, it would be good to look at not just the traditional textbooks, the scriptures, but 
into the research work of solid scientists who have moved into this. They, I have looked into their works, and they have ways of explaining out, explaining out, right? Explaining out the claims of this fellow scientists who would just would just superficially uh, dish out dismiss. yeah dismiss this who would just dis not disco who would just dis these claims right <laughs> okay So, yeah, that's how we could bring in uh, new ways of looking at it, new ways of enriching the, the basic principles uh, in, uh, in embedded in the scriptures, but not necessarily having been expanded uh, in, uh, at, in pace with the time. Both sentient beings and Buddhas possess the primordially pure awareness of Rigpa. Now here, the term primordially has to be understood in its proper context. Otherwise, it would seem like something given or something already there. But what it is saying that is that the pure awareness of Rigpa, or the pure awareness, pure cognizant, pure nature of the mind, is something that has never been defiled before. And you could look into oneself in terms of how even even the mind's mental state of anger itself. When you are very angry, the Rigpa practice practice particularly partly not that I know too much about it, but partly involves even in the midst of anger or whatnot, kind of being aware of it and then distance oneself from it, not necessarily resisting it, but at the same time not fueling it, not following it, not chasing it. Kind of it wouldn't have it, it wouldn't just go away, it would be there. But there's a possibility that you could maintain some kind of resistance and then look at it. Without fueling it, without chasing after it, without also resisting it. But looking at it and that in the midst of that state, there's the possibility of even having some glimpse of the luminous, cognizant nature of the mind that it shares with anger, or upon which the anger mode of apprehension has been imposed. And then slowly, kind of almost speaking in physical metaphors, kind of able to extract, extract that clear, cognizant nature of the mind and diffuse the anger with, without its, its basis upon which it's landed. So it's, it's a different way of dealing with it. In the, in, instead of kind of contracting it with a, with a direct antidote, it's it's a way of kind of distancing distancing from it and and bereaving it of its fuel. 
And the very fact that you can say that this is anger, I'm now angry, it's itself, it itself has an effect of distancing from it, instead of identifying with it. So to that extent, it's like, now, now I am angry, or the mind state that I'm in is anger. And to that extent, it kind of keeps you from totally identifying with it. And that kind of opens the space for eventually dealing with it accordingly. And in in this particular technique, without really con- coming up with a counter- counteractive measure, but just maintaining the composure of mere awareness of it. It's interesting. And in the midst of that, it, it would outwardly look like doing nothing, kind of do nothing. They make a big deal about not doing nothing being a big deal. In a way it is, because we are so busy doing something. Even when we think that we are not doing, we are not doing, we are doing the not doing. So we kind of really so addicted to doing something. So if we could kind of excel in this undoing, not doing, yeah, that could open up so much about ourselves. So both sentient beings and Buddhas possess the primordially pure awareness of Rikpa. Sometimes they speak of the natural mind, right? The natural, the uncontrived, uncontrived, unaffected, natural mind. And from that perspective, there is no difference between them. However, there is a big, great difference between having and not having the two obscurations. So sentient beings must still practice the path because defilements do not vanish by themselves. In terms of both of their minds being undefiled in their nature by their afflictions, it's the same. Buddha's mind and our mind is same in that they share in this pure cognizant nature with their nature not being infiltrated by the afflictions. They may have just taken the form of anger. Yeah, now I've come up with a better way of calling it. Uh, you called it out last time when I just slipped into saying in the nature of anger, in the form of anger. The mind in the form of anger, but still retaining its purity in its very basic core. So in that respect, there is no difference whatsoever. But there is a big, big difference. So, so this calls, calls for deep thinking about what we really mean by mere level, mere name. See, it's quite uh, quite intriguing and quite quite a coincidence that every time, every every Friday we recite this song of four mindfulness, right? And it ends up ends with appearance emptiness. Wow! Which means there is the possibility of. 
cognizing something being empty of inherent existence, yet at the same time, not just appreciating, but even experiencing the the mere contingency of things. So it's not that when we speak of empty, things become, what do you call, negated, or things become non-existent. And when we affirm things being dependently arisen, they become dependently arisen inherently. <laughs> so this, this, this effort to really be able to if not see, but at least call to mind that, yes, just the very fact that they did this in relation to this, and they are et etc., et just taking on a slight insight about the interdependence. You let that kind of bring you into the awareness of that. That's because they lack inherent, ex- inherent existence. The very fact that the causal dependency and also the, mm, let me show up this word, meriological dependency, yes? Oh, wow! <laughs> Did it come out from my mouth? <laughs> this is dependency on the parts. But at the same time, I have changed, I have shifted a little bit in how I uh classify the three dependent 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 meriological i think i think <laughs> m e r e o this was affirmed last time when i shared it when it was sang come to right away check and say No, no, no. I see. Meriological. That, that, that's actually, you may not remember, or you may remember, Professor J. Garfield uses it. And I happen to uh, notice it in one of his writings on Buddhist ethics that I was asked to proofread and comment on. I only succeeded in reading up to the 100th page and then submitted uh, my submitted my critical uh, thoughts. I went on record uh, for his description on, of me as a translator. The most difficult translator that I have ever met! <laughs> Because he would say something, and I'm supposed to translate it into Tibetan. I say, by the way, before I translate it, what do you mean by this? Do you mean, did you mean this or this? Because this could go this way and this way, both ways. But what? I felt very justified, right? Legitimately justified to ask it. Because how else am I supposed to pass it on to them? Once I have got that qualm in me. So he ended up saying, the most difficult translator I have ever met in my life. And I took that as a compliment. <laughs> because the way I take or not is up to me. It cannot be imposed, right? So I said, oh, it's okay. 
<laughs> yeah, so even when we speak of causal dependency or meteorological dependency, dependency on parts or not, the very reason for them is because the cause and effect lack inherent existence. If it weren't for them lacking in inherent existence, they wouldn't be able to be causally affecting each other. So that's how if we push the causal relationship, causal dependency, it would land us into the dependency of mere designation. It's, by the way, from a Buddhist understanding, and in fact also, everything is underpinned by the fact that they lack inherent existence. They are mere dependent on, radically on mere designation. And that part is, that part is quite difficult to understand when we speak of how the Buddha's mind and our mind are the same. And when we, if we extend it even further saying, not just that, we're all same in being merely designated. Oh, then the, the, the first thought that comes, pops up in our mind is, how good it would be if someone could designate Buddha on me. <laughs> if I could rally everyone around this, talk them into really labeling me as Buddha, maybe there's a chance of becoming Buddha instantly. I came here as non-Buddha and I could walk out as Buddha. But that's not there. So there's this past, there's this need of really interviewing, in interweaving, dovetailing the mere designated aspect of things with the very groundedness of their being conventionally real. If I can get my way, I even want to avoid using the term convention. I say being real yet at the same time being merely labeled. So, and which means, by the very fact that you accept things being, things, things being actually there, even really there, they are really there. I mean, nothing wrong with being really there. They are really there because they affect. I'm really here because I'm speaking and you hear me. I'm really here. <laughs> so, so nothing wrong with the word itself. So I'm really here, but not inherently. So to be able to really, to be able to really interweave the two and see no, no contradiction, instead seeing them reinforcing each other, one without the other cannot be ever, ever possible and, and one should be able to conceive that that's not possible to that extent. That's when, and that seems to be a little, that, that seems to be difficult. That's why this, this expression with which we end this uh, recitation on Friday's appearance, emptiness, is so, what do you call, so challenging at the same time, so, uh, yeah, challenging at the same time, so willing to check, take the challenge. Be able to affirm the emptiness of everything, 
but at the same time affirm. Because, by the way, when we speak of things being empty of inherent existence, or things being empty, we are affirming their reality. We cannot speak of things being empty when there is nothing. I mean, we cannot speak of, we can speak of emptiness, but that wouldn't be uh, on par with the emptiness that we really, really aspire to understand. If we were to think of it on a rabbit's, rabbit's horn, because lack of inherent existence of rabbit's horn doesn't mean anything. There's no way in that. It's equal to saying that the, the, the rabbit's horn is non-existent. That's all what it is affirming. So for the emptiness, the understanding of emptiness, the concept of emptiness, to have that weight, to have that, it has to necessarily be, what do you call, uh, based, or, yeah, necessarily be based on an existing phenomenon. So anyway, when we speak of things being inherently lacking, inherently existent, it's 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 in a way affirming that that thing actually exists, but still lack inherent existence. And also, when we speak of things being empty, we swing the reason, the very reason we we come out is because they are dependently related, dependently arisen. So we affirm their dependent reason, depend their existence has a reason for them to lack inherent existence. But that part is easily easily spoken, difficult to experience. That's why there's a telling statement, composition in Lamrim where Tongkapa says, when this, when push comes to show <laughs> with regard to this relationship between emptiness and whatnot, then even if you do not understand fully, just have faith in the assertions of the Prasangika Madhamika. And then at least for the time being, accept it. Yeah, at the same time, the word emptiness itself has, it can go any direction. I was reading some, some, some paper where somebody really just out of the blue spoke of emptiness. They are speaking of emptiness in a totally different context. I had a feeling of emptiness. Somebody had a feeling of emptiness when somebody lost someone. Wow, they had this emptiness feeling, not just understanding, but feeling of emptiness. <laughs> that is close to ex experiential understanding of emptiness. Really feeling it at the gut level. You felt the emptiness of the loss of someone. Wow, that's a very different emptiness. Right? <laughs> anyway, so, so words are not, 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 not guarantee. So that part uh, we have to come out of also when you think of anything, right? Not identify it with the word. 
Anyway, we have okay. Yeah, we we yeah. From the Dzogchen, yeah, two eighty four. From the Dzogchen perspective, when an afflictive mental state such as hatred or jealousy is manifest. The Rigpa or clear light mind that pervades that coarse mind is not defiled. So, this is a little difficult, right? Because in a way, it is one and the same thing at that time. But at the same time, one can speak of the Rigpa aspect of that mind, which is not defiled in its core, in its core nature. So, thinking of one being defiled and other being not defiled, in the sense that, yes, with effort, under the guidance of a good teacher, even though one is not doing anything at that time, it's almost like one is transfixed. And one is just, it's, it's, it's almost like the anger is just, what do you call, just uh, suspended. Oh, is, does that convey? When you say suspend, is it there or not? It's there, right? It's hanging on. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's still, it's hanging on, but it's hanging there. Yet at the same time, after one's own effort, after one's own effort of not doing anything, under the guidance of the great teacher, even though outwardly it would seem like just blanking out, but that would do wonders in really seeing the the actual nature of mind. And that, uh, in a way, it makes sense when we say this Rigpa is the same as the clear light mind, not the conventional, mere, pure, luminous and cognizant nature, but rather deeper still into the very subtlest nature of mind. Because from because from a Buddhist perspective, particularly from the highest yoga Vajrayana perspective, which is considered more uh, which is considered the the ultimate intent of the Buddha. From that perspective, as a being let let let's not talk about the entire universe, but as a person, as a person, as a as an individual being, our whole our whole identity, our whole identity, our whole being, if we were to kind of trace it further and further and further and further by taking the layers of ultimately we would land on the subtlest clear light mind together with its energy mount. So in a way, with that as the basis, the entirety of our being in terms of our body and mind kind of comes into being from that. And it kind of subsides, or what do you call, uh, yeah. Uh, although, where was that? Would it be here, this from? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In one of the teachings by Kishishatabila, in in the course of uh, refuting the positions of the other 
non-Buddhist uh, tenet philosophy, saying that they accept permanent source or something, and that eventually they go back into that source. <laughs> In a way, it is similar here. Not that they go back, but they, the 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 superficial or the grosser layers kind of become dysfunctional, and as they give. Uh, give in to the, uh, the subtle and subtle settlements. Finally, the subtlest one is the subtle cleanliness mind. So, in a way, our whole composite, our whole uh, makeup of body and mind, complex body and mind matrix, is is at even at the grossest level, it's ultimately, ultimately, hinging on that, uh, on that subtlest mind. So there is a possibility, uh, even in. I mean, I kind of see that there is a possibility of seeing even the the subtlest kalyana mind, except it is a different way of approach of activating. But when when one suspends, not just the anger by not interacting with it, be that through resisting or fueling it, but at the same time, kind of let go of any kind of activity of the mind, but be fully present. It's almost like kind of. Taking the layers off of the uh, mind, and so much so that eventually nothing but for the subtlest mind would be would have no choice but to be manifest. So, so that what I think is uh, could be called going on, uh, or maybe completely, completely off kilter. <laughs> okay, there is still the potential for Rigpa to shine forth. This is the source of statements in Dzogchen literature that resemble Nagarjuna's assertion in the praise to the sphere of reality, where it says, within afflictions, wisdom abides. Yeah, there I looked up this, the praise to the spear of reality. Or oh, it could be translated as praise to Dharma Dhatu. Yeah. Praise to Dharma Dhatu. That, that sounds more exotic. <laughs> Let's keep that. Praise to Dharma Dhatu. Oh. Even the very name itself seems to invoke some experience. I did. I did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it says, Sai kilna yuepe chu, tima mebara nepatar. Just as the water in deep, deep inside the earth, uh, just as the water deep inside the earth remains undefiled, likewise, in the midst of afflictions, wisdom abides. Tishin tima mebara and that wisdom abides without being defiled. So so that's what Venerable is referring to. Here, wisdom refers to the cognitive component of the mind, its clarity and cognizance, not to actual wisdom. But then, if we, if we associate it with the Dzogchen literature, then this wisdom would have to be the subtlest clear that mind. Right? 
That cognitive component is called wisdom because it is the cause for wisdom to arise in the future. The meaning is that amidst afflictions, this undefiled, clear cognitive component or rigpa exists. Yeah. So, we have two, two, two more minutes, if people have any questions. You know, there is one question from last time. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah. If I remember correctly, during one of the illumination of the intent in the reviews, oh, I remember that. I, we had the fun. Whoa, that was something I was looking forward to every day. It almost that that brought back memories of our debate with Kishela. We spent years and years together, almost on a daily basis, because we were in the same class, and people would not come and debate partner with us because we were serious students, and and they would say, no, 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 please, no, I don't want to spoil, uh, waste your time. So even classmates would go away. Sometimes that happens. So we ended up really debating together years and years and years. Yeah, so I was immediately reminded of that. You mentioned, so okay, I, if I remember correctly, during one of the illumination of the intent reviews, you mentioned that bodhisattvas do not fight the afflictions as strongly as the physical, fundamental vehicle practitioners. Can you explain this a bit more? Bodhisattvas are open to use even afflictions for the service of sentient beings, because their intention is not individual liberation. Their intention is full awakening, nothing but full awakening. And while thinking of that, they do not have individual liberation in their, in their perspective. They were even ready to sacrifice individual liberation, if at all that's going to help in serving others. So their focus is not individual liberation at all. But the only way to full awakening is by being individually liberated. But in the meantime, their focus is not on that. And because of that, it is said that in the scriptures, as bodhisattva, they outshine non-bodhisattvas the moment they generate bodhicitta by virtue of the, by virtue of the company or the lineage or the, that they have now joined in. But not yet outshine non-bodhisattvas through their wisdom. But when they arrive the path of seeing, that's when they even have shined them through their wisdom. Because although at the path of seeing they would not have attained liberation, but if they were to really put all effort in individual liberation, by that time they would have gained it. So that's the reason why, although you are using the term strongly, I've, I, I mean, this is the this is Tibetan word that I struggle with, uh, how to convey it. They're not earnestly working to eliminate their afflictions. 
they're open to even using it if they can uh, for the service of others. And they are capable of sometimes. So, so the word, what would be the word? They do not, they do not work against afflictions on a war footing. That may, may not be close to it. They do not work against the afflictions as alternately as Shavakas and Prateka Buddhas. The Tibetan term is Chetu Nyerne. Chetu. They do not go after the afflictions. As something to be kind of uh, something to be uh, This is, yeah, yeah. Pardon? Chetu is not for the same Yeah, Chetu. But, but, but here it is, it has a connotation of doing it deliberately, doing it intentionally, doing it with earnestness, with urgency. Oh, yeah. Some way, when you say it's urgency, then it conveys something. They do not work against the afflictions urgently. That's not their burning desire. The burning desire is self-centeredness. If they could do that by using, by taking, by use, uh, by employing anger or whatnot, they would be doing it. Although that's not possible, there may be other ways of doing it, right? By which they could work against their self-centeredness. So they do employ their afflictions, particularly the desire afflictions, and then that uh, that. That that quality becomes amplified when they practice even advanced uh, practices. So that's the reason. So that's why they gain individual liberation only at the eighth path, and that's not by working so urgently for it, but. By virtue that that's, that has to that has to pass to go to full awakening. But if they were to really put full effort, uh, then they could have easily done it at the path of seeing. So that's how. So yeah. With that, we will stop here. And but at the same time, this is not to say that we. We drop our, what is that? Drop our guard against the afflictions. Because, because this we are talking of someone who has really generated bodhicitta. And by that itself, they would have gained so much of strength and so much of a, so much of a strength to kind of eventually progress to, uh, Kind of even being able to maneuver afflictions without succumbing to their damages, yet at the same time being able to use it for the benefit of others. So, with that note, we'll stop here and dedicate. <laughs>